I sometimes try to have private conversations with some of the big opinion former types, but it becomes very apparent that many of them are captured by their audience. They develop whole sort of follower lists of hundreds of thousands of people. They have a vested interest in continuing to tell certain stories, even though those stories are misleading. And trying to get them to nuance those stories is near on impossible because they've staked their whole reputation on it. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk's daily opinions section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And now here he is, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. I think we can all agree that some of the debates in the space have been less than healthy. People can be quite intolerant of each other's views, and even at Coindesk, we get people writing in all the time saying not only that they disagree with a certain point of view, but that we shouldn't use the platform to really even air that point of view, that it's somehow beyond the pale. But I think there's a kind of raft of critics out there who are really worth listening to because they bring interesting points of view to the debate. I want to introduce one of those critics today, and hopefully we can have a good discussion with him. This is Brett Scott, and he's a well-regarded journalist, campaigner, and author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. And he's coming out with a new book next year, which is about the uh, war on cash and uh, monetary systems. So welcome to the show, Brett. Hey, Ben. Good to be here. So you wrote a piece this week for Coindesk that touches on some of these sort of how we debate questions. But before we get to that, uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about yourself. You have a degree in anthropology and international development uh, and used to work in the derivatives markets. How did you come to be in this whole sort of area of new money and finance futurism? I, yeah, I have a kind of um, academic background in anthropology and history. But actually, I went and worked in the financial markets during the financial crisis. I was involved in um, derivative markets, so over-the-counter swap contracts, which are a whole sort of world in themselves. But in that process of working in the derivative markets, I was working in, um, amongst other things, inflation derivatives, which are a very special subset of derivatives, basically bets on the level of inflation. When I was involved in these markets, I became quite aware that actually you know, many people in high finance themselves are very good at designing various contractual instruments to move money around, but didn't actually know very much about the monetary system itself. To put it in a slightly different way, it's a little bit like an artist who's very good at painting, but has no idea about how the paint is made. Many financiers know how to move money around using various instruments, but they don't actually know what exactly the monetary system is and how it works. After leaving the financial sector, I got involved in lots of, lots of different things, actually, lots of, lots of financial reform movements, banking reform movements and stuff. But I also got into alternative currency. This was actually before the crypto uh, stuff took off. So I was involved in lots of pre-crypto alternative currency type uh, things. But when uh, Bitcoin came out, I got involved in it probably from around about 2010 or so. So I've been around the, the Bitcoin community for at least 10 years and did various things in the early days to help out. I did one of the very first like descriptions of Bitcoin that became widely used in 2011. I produced a whole sort of database of academic papers. I used to accept Bitcoin in, uh, in exchange for stuff. So I've been around the scene and I kind of know the deal. I've also developed various critiques of the system over time as well, which I'm happy to elaborate upon. Would it be fair to say that you were a true believer in those early days and that you've uh, become more of a skeptic over time? No. I mean, bear in mind, I've been involved in lots of different movements. 
So I've been exposed to many different styles of what you might call economic reform. People who have a critique of the economic system and want to do something about it. And I've run the spectrum from, you know, ecological permaculture designers who are like hippies through to like hawkish conservatives who have completely different ideas. So I've seen the different ways people approach economic change and where the sort of similarities and differences lie. But also I come from an anthropology background, right? So I often am interested in how different groups imagine what they're doing and, and to what extent those are productive stories or not. So when going into Bitcoin, I was always very interested in open, but I became very aware at the, from the start of how I tended to have a much broader perspective on it than many people who are getting quite obsessive about it. So I never had the obsessive elements that many of the sort of quote unquote true believers have, but I've always been open and interested in experimenting with it, which is why, I mean, I've, I've used it for lots of stuff. I mean, I'm probably one of the few people in the, at least among new Bitcoiners, who many new Bitcoiners have never actually used Bitcoin for exchange, whereas I, in the early days, was using it a lot for exchange. Good to know. Let's talk about the piece. It's called How to Win a Bitcoin Street Fight Without Mortal Combat. And we'll get to why we talked about that. Uh, well, we named it that in a little bit. We'll uh, repost the link in the podcast page. In the, in the piece, you talk about two different arguments in favor of Bitcoin that you think are often confused or conflated or used sort of interchangeably. Can you talk about what those arguments are and how that sort of process takes place? Sure. I would actually would frame it as there are two different battlegrounds and they're two conceptually separate battlegrounds. And you can be a pro-Bitcoin person or a critic in either of those battlegrounds but you can't be in both of them at the same time. And this is why I use the metaphor of Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. Um, I don't know how many people have actually ever played these games, but in old games arcades, these were the two top fighting games that you could play. And in Street Fighter, there's a series of characters you can play. In Mortal Kombat, there's a series of characters you can play. But the basic deal is once you pick one of those games, you don't get to use the characters from Street Fighter in Mortal Kombat. You've got to fight in that game. This is why I set up that metaphor, because it's like when you're engaging in Bitcoin debates, there are different battlegrounds you can choose. But if you choose a battleground, you've got to stick there and you don't get to jump between. Um, and part of my argument is that much of what's going on, which a lot of the stuff that muddies the debates around Bitcoin is this tendency among certain people in the community to repeatedly jump between different battlefields or perhaps as paradigms. And one of them, it's when they're arguing around the money part of the Bitcoin story, like, is it a monetary system? A separate battlefield concerns Bitcoin as an asset in a market. And the whole the piece was about how those, those two get kind of mixed together in quite toxic ways. How does this play out uh, when you get on Twitter and you start debating it? Can you give us uh, a bit more of an example of how someone would switch between the two different battlegrounds like that? Sure. I mean, the biggest one that I get faced with all the time is... I will say something like, and for example, a few weeks ago, I put out like a nine-part tweet where I was telling people, look, Bitcoin is an object on a market. If you want to put your money into it, please do so. You're welcome to put your money into it, but don't be under any illusions about what it is. It's an object or kind of a collectible on a market, and there's no guarantee that you're going to make any money from this. And the reason why I put that tweet out was that family members of mine in South Africa and old school friends of mine... Whenever there's a Bitcoin price rise, they keep on sending me messages 
and they're asking me these questions. Oh, should I be buying this? And they always send me these dodgy kind of like fraud. Uh, they're basically like in South Africa where I'm from. There's all these like fraudsters when as soon as the price goes up, they start targeting like members of my family and various friends of mine who don't understand necessarily much about the monetary system. They start targeting them with all this kind of stuff. So I felt this need to put out this tweet. Anyway, um, so I say there, look, it's this object that can go up in price, but it can also go down in price. But the immediate thing that people come back to me with is, oh, this is a deflationary money issue system that's going to fight the fiat currency system. All right. Now, I was involved for a long time in inflation derivative markets. I understand what inflation hedging is, and it is not frequently what people in the Bitcoin community are often making it out to be. Or if you're trying to conceptualize how inflation hedging works, it's very important to understand what you're doing. Basically, what's happening, there's money in the world and there's goods in the world. When you're doing inflation hedging, you take your money, you buy some kind of good, and then later you sell the good for more money to compensate for the fact that in the meantime, your money might have lost power. That is an inflation hedge. And there are many things that have that quality to them. For example, the stock market has that quality to it precisely because the objects that many corporations sell are the things that you will then find in an inflation index. So corporations will tend to make more money as inflation rises, which is why it's an inflation hedge too. All right, Bitcoin is a new contender in this realm of possible things to hedge inflation with. Now, in that realm, it is not a monetary instrument. It is an object you buy for money and then resell for money. Now, this is a very conceptually separate thing to a deflationary currency, which is a type of money you hold and gets more and more powerful relative to goods and services in the society. I'm aware this might be like quite difficult, but those are very different concepts. But frequently, Bitcoiners are interchangeably using them. So they'll see an object that's rising in price and they'll say, oh, it's an appreciating asset. But then they will simultaneously say, oh, it's a deflationary currency that's fighting the fiat money system. And then my response would be like, no, it's not. It's an object that's going up in price, much like farmland might, or much like GameStop shares might. But the main conceptual confusion comes from the fact that the object has money-like branding. You're not saying that independently those arguments don't work. They independently work, yeah. They just don't work together. But you seem to be saying in the piece also that actually people use the inflation argument as a kind of marketing tool to get people to buy into the asset, which is a slightly kind of different argument. Yeah. There's an innocent version of the confusion, which is somebody who's not necessarily trained to spot the difference between a monetary system and an object with superficially money-like elements to it. Now, that's an innocent mistake to make. And that's where, in, in, this, in my analogy of like confusing Street Fighter with Mortal Kombat, you've kind of wandered into the, the game's arcade and you haven't noticed that there's a difference between the games. There's also a cynical version of this where somebody deliberately misrepresents an object on an asset market as being a money system for marketing purposes in order to pump up the price of their object. Now, the reason why you might do this, let's imagine that you are trying to make your Bitcoin asset compete against other assets in a market, and you're facing things like shares, for example. Now, shares have an actual claim, a legal claim upon things in the world, right? If I'm holding like a British petroleum share, it has a, it's a legal contract promising very specific things in the world. 
it's quite like a self-assured thing. It knows who it is, basically. And like the BP share is under no confusion as to what it is. Similarly, farmland like knows what it is. But if you take a sort of a digital object and you're trying to get it to compete in that same marketplace against those assets, and it has no inherent story to it, the money story becomes a compelling narrative for how you allow it to compete on that asset market. So the cynical part of this thing is it's how people will use that monetary story with all the kind of saber rattling about taking down the fiat money system and stuff, basically in order to pump up the price of their asset against other assets. And the whole point is, it, is it's not fighting the US dollar, it's fighting things like BP shares or farmland or rare postage stamps. That's who its contenders are, right? Um, and so that's, that's what that, that part of the argument was about. You also argue in the piece that thinking about Bitcoin as a monetary system could actually be injurious to the poor because it would lead to less power in, in the monetary system for people to spend on goods and services. If we are choosing, if we walk into the arcade and we choose a game, we'd say, okay, we're going to let debate the idea that Bitcoin is money. Right now, Bitcoin is not money, but let's hypothetically say it was money. And we've chosen to play this game to fight each other. The, the whole sort of like monetary argument around Bitcoin is a very specific one and it's not invalid, but it, it has a very specific ideological element to it, which is it believes that constrained money supplies are a good thing. Now, historically, there's only very specific people who believe that constrained money supplies are a good thing. And most notably, creditors in a society believe it's a good thing because the more constrained your money is, the tighter a grip you have as a creditor. This is why creditors hate it when governments are printing money because it's weakening their position, relatively speaking. But people who are in debt like it when there's inflation, right? Because it lowers the burden of their debt. So this whole idea of like who benefits from deflation or inflation really depends on your positioning in an economy. And that's a nuanced debate that you can have. There's extremes on either side. My family is from Zimbabwe. I don't need to be lectured by people about the dangers of hyperinflation, but I also refuse to accept um, some of these narratives that the idea of having this extremely constrained money supply is somehow in the interests of the everyday person, especially young people who are trying to enter an economy anew. But all of this debate here is predicated upon the underlying assumption that Bitcoin actually operates as money, which it doesn't. So it's a kind of a hypothetical debate of a, some future hypothetical world in which Bitcoin had actually become money. But often, again, as I'm saying, these, these are conflated. Generally, do you think we should be worried about inflation? A lot of people say, uh, why are we inventing this anti-inflation hedge when inflation hasn't really been a problem for a decade or so? The only way you, to be thinking about any kind of like economic analysis is you've got to be thinking about the sort of trade-offs and systems. The world is a contradictory place. There is no pure right form that exists. Harping on about how wonderful a deflationary currency is, is fine, but you're missing like huge parts of the picture. Can you imagine having a mortgage debt? I mean, the economic implications of it are really bad for a lot of people. Similarly, hyperinflation is not good for anybody, right? There's a whole nuanced zone of politics around how monetary systems are run, all right? And it's not one or the other. And if you want to have an interesting debate, that's what you got to do. You know, I go onto Twitter and I say something like, well, it's pretty obvious to me that like Bitcoin right now is an object priced in dollars and it's pumping up in price. Fine. You can do that for a long time. You can probably triple the price. You could probably even make it 10 times the price right now. 
that doesn't make it a monetary system. And I say that, and people then come back and attack me about hyperinflation. I'm like, what has that got to do with hyperinflation? You completely missed the paradigm. We're not playing the same game here. We're not existing in the same intellectual, conceptual framework. Um, and it's really frustrating because some of the most mainstream Bitcoiners do it. Some of the biggest Bitcoiners who have the biggest followings routinely do this all the time. What do you think we should be doing about that? I mean, as journalists, should we be calling these people out? What are the kind of controls for this type of behavior? I mean, I don't really know, to be honest. I sometimes try to have private conversations with some of the big opinion former types, uh, but it becomes very apparent that many of them are captured by their audience. They themselves have like developed, and I'm not going to name names, they developed whole sort of follower lists of you know hundreds of thousands of people. And they've, they have a vested interest in continuing to tell certain stories, even though those stories are misleading. And trying to get them to nuance those stories is near on impossible because they've staked their whole reputation on it. Unfortunately, that's just a, a reality in uh, the scene. And sometimes it's innocent. They've sort of stumbled into it and have kind of suddenly become these big commentators without uh, intending it. But sometimes it's, it's downright cynical. And, and that's really sad. And, you know, the, the, other, the other problem is that, like, you know, the, the, one of the, the key things I always get attacked on, people say, oh, yeah, the reason why you're, you're nitpicking about this is that, is that somehow you lost out on the gains of Bitcoin. And I'm like, what has that got to do with pointing out the reality of the system? So let's go back to the financial markets where I used to work. It's a no trader's interest to be ignorant about the thing that they're trading. It's in your interest to know exactly what you're trading and have a very precise definition of it. So when I'm going there, I'm saying I'm pointing out the nature of this object that you are trading. Anybody who's actually interested in these things should be thinking about that kind of stuff. Bitcoin's marketing depends on a certain story. The worst part about this is that actually, if you were interested authentically in making Bitcoin into a monetary system, there's things you could do, but they would depend on first getting this very clear definitions out. In your opinion, do you think that would be desirable for Bitcoin to be the basis of a new monetary system? And how would you change it to make it so? I mean, it would take a lot of work. I mean, I do work on alternative currency systems to entrench Bitcoin as an actual monetary system. Here, it would take a lot of work right now. But, and I mentioned this in the article, one of the authentically nuanced arguments you can make if you know what you're talking about in the scene is around Bitcoin's use in counter-trading. So I always have this debate with Alex Gladstein. I don't know if you, you know, probably know Alex. And Alex, his, his whole sort of uh, spiel is based on this idea that people in developing countries can use Bitcoin to escape the tyranny of their own authoritarian government. What I would say back to him is like, yes, in a limited sense, this is possible, all right, because it is true that if you have a movable object that is priced in US dollars, you can buy that object and use it as a, as a way to exchange. And But, but the, what this process is called in technical monetary terms is counter trade. It's when you take one thing that's priced in money and you exchange it for something else that's priced in money, but you cancel out the money legs of those things. It's a superficially barter-like transaction but you can basically do it with anything. Um, you can do it with any object. Um, the, the simplest way to like put it would be something like, if your headphones cost $50 and my microphone costs $50 and we were wanting to buy these from each other, we would just say, tell you what, let's call it quits 
you give me the headphones, I'll give you the microphone because both cost $50. What's happening there, it's two monetary transactions crossing over each other such that the money part of it cancels out. That's what's happening with almost all Bitcoin transactions when there's actually something quote unquote being bought. And I know this because I've sold or quote unquote sold stuff with Bitcoin many times. And that's actually technically what's going on. It's a form of counter trade. It's not a monetary instrument. In that context, there's a, there's a limited role for Bitcoin to do some interesting stuff if, if you're working in, in that sort of uh, paradigm, which is what Alex is trying to say sometimes when he's making these arguments about how people in developing countries can be using it. Uh, we better have uh, Alex on to talk about this so he can respond to you. Yeah, I would love to debate Alex because we're constantly getting into little skirmishes online. <laughs> Alex Stadstein, by the way, is a uh, member of uh, Human Rights Foundation and a very prominent activist for Bitcoin in developing countries. Do you want to just give us a quick preview of the book you're working on and how you're going to develop uh, these arguments going forward? Well, it's, it's almost finished. It's just going through edits right now. But it's about the cash system. It's about the digital money, the mainstream digital money system, so the bank system. It's about the war on cash, which is about how the banking sector-run digital payment system is increasing in power relative to the state money system. And then I'm looking at how Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies intersect with that because a lot of the original development of stuff like Bitcoin and the cypherpunks comes out of this concern about a future cashless society. And what I'm arguing there is that there are elements to Bitcoin that are actually very interesting. It's gone a certain distance in being able to address that problem but it hasn't gone the full distance. It's sort of stopped halfway. And so the book kind of looks forward into hybrid types of systems and possibilities going forward. So I'm looking into like central bank digital currencies. I'm looking into like new wave um, alternative currencies that go beyond the uh, monetary constraints or the, or the sort of constraints of, of systems like uh, Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, it should be coming out in a year's time. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that and hopefully you'll come back on and uh, talk a bit more about that. Absolutely. It's great to have a somewhat skeptic to talk about these issues and, uh, and have a good debate around it. Well, I hope those concepts made sense. If not, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at SuitPossum and I can uh, send you some links and things. Very good. Thanks very much, Brett. My name is Ben Schiller. This has been uh, Opinionated and thanks for listening. See you soon.